the paintings themselves kind of become just the, the science experiments. So I have all of these two modes of like working, whether it be like the digital and the physical or the philosophical and the studio approach to the work or visual and literature aspect of the work. All of those things I feel like are constantly competing for attention in a way where I am forced to kind of make compromises in a way that it seems as though they work in congruency together to express something that you can't say otherwise. You know, they rely on each other to kind of create these, these moments. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 239th episode, I'm excited to be joined by Spencer Molnar, who spoke with me from Normal, Illinois, where he's currently earning his MFA degree. And Spencer was one of our 2020 MFA competition winners selected by Tim Kowalczyk, so we're excited to have him on. Spencer grew up in the Northern Ohio area. He earned his BFA degree from Kent State University and then went on to Las Vegas after graduating to live out there to experience life in a weird desert landscape, especially coming from the Midwest. We talk all about the relationship between the digital practices as well as analog or physical practices, his interest in philosophy and critical theory, and how all of these strike a different balance in his work. And it's really interesting in that Spencer doesn't want to have a prescribed uh, methodology for making the work. It always has to be something that's fresh, something that's new and considered. And, of course, we talk all about that coming up in the interview. I do want to note that our professional competition was just extended to November 15th, so there's still time to get your application in. Our juror, Liz Tran, will be selecting five artists for an upcoming appearance on Studio Break and to share their work. Again, professional artists include emerging, mid-career, established, and outsider artists. Unfortunately, students cannot apply to this competition. The competition is open to all 2D, 3D, and new media artists. If you want more information, go to studiobreak.com, look for our competition page, and it's quite simple to apply. You submit a small fee, you send an email identifying who you are, and including a website and or Instagram account, and you are all set. Your work will be reviewed, and who knows, you might wind up on Studio Break. I would note that the first 50 BIPOC artists will have their fees waived. So once again, studiobreak.com, look for the competition page for more details. And that extended deadline is November 15th. Of course, I want to remind new listeners and maybe just podcast listeners that you can check out more interviews, artwork at studiobreak.com. Again, each of our posts have images of the artist's artwork, links to their websites, and these interviews, which you can listen to right in the default player, or just click those links on the left sidebar, subscribe to the podcast, and that way you've always got something to listen to while you're working away in the studio. So be sure and check out our catalog. You can, of course, find us on Facebook, so please like our page there. You can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break and, of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. Always great to hear from listeners and, of course, a great way to stay in tune and up to date with what's going on with the podcast, so be sure and follow us. All right, with those announcements wrapped, let's jump into our interview with Spencer Molnar. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Spencer Molnar. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Excellent. You know, we're, I think, both enjoying our Friday after a wonderful week of uh, 
online teaching. So it's nice to kind of have you on here so we can talk all about your artwork. And I guess before we really dive into it, you know, your Instagram is I look spiffy. So, you know, if people want to check out work, go there. And uh, again, you are one of our uh, MFA winners from the 2020 competition selected by Tim Kowalczyk. So, you know, really happy to have you on. Oh, I'm super excited to be here. I've been looking forward to it for a while. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about painting. So, yeah. I guess before we really get into that, where are you from? Let's get a, a little bit of a background. Again, you're very mysterious. So <laughs> where are you from? And, and we can kind of go from there. Well, I grew up in uh, North Canton, Ohio. So it's northeastern Ohio. A lot of people are familiar with Akron, Ohio, which was 20 minutes north as a result of LeBron James these days. Well, I'm curious then, too, like relative to growing up in Ohio, were you like outdoorsy? Did you make a lot of artwork? Did you play in bands or skateboard or what are some of the, the things that you like to do when you were younger? It's funny. I, a lot of those things that you mentioned, I tried a little <laughs> bit. Like um, I remember I, I tried orchestra playing viola. That didn't last very long at all. <laughs> I tried skateboarding a little bit and, you know, rollerblading. And I was kind of into <laughs> that for a period of time, but I was never any good really. I played some sports in high school, but I was never really a standout athlete by any means. But art was something that I constantly came back to. So I tried out all these things, and it seems like art was the one constant that just stuck with me throughout my life. And I knew I wanted to pursue something creative. Originally, I actually went into graphic design, and I was fortunate enough to like pick up some side jobs doing graphic design work during my undergrad studies. And... You know, I was at a branch campus where they didn't have the graphic design classes that were necessary towards advancing my degree. So to fill some of those requirements, I took a drawing and a painting class. And I had been doing it throughout high school, but in a college setting, I was like, this, I, I love this. I love this. I absolutely love this. This will not get old to me, despite how long I continue this career. So I ended up changing my major from graphic design to fine art and painting and drawing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit of a scary choice, but I'm glad I chose it because it seems to kind of be working out, you know, <laughs> sure. uh, despite all of the hardships that we can face as artists. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's interesting about when you say that, I mean, I remember being in high school, like watercolor class, like, you know, painting like comic book figures or something like that. So when I think about my initial experiences with painting, you know, in college, is like there is like a seriousness about it, um, an intensity about it with the way that professors bring stuff to you that really does kind of, I don't know, like it really opens up a whole new world, if that makes sense, as opposed to just yeah. thinking about like, oh, I could, you know, use watercolor paint spaceships and stuff. I don't know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I, I think the thing that like really motivated me, I didn't realize this until later and like taking some other classes, but I was always like going to family events and I had some uncles and my dad as well. Like we always spoke really philosophically about topics mm -hmm. and I didn't realize that we were speaking philosophically about things until I got exposed to it. But I think philosophy was the one thing that added to art as a career in the college atmosphere that I wasn't accustomed to. Mm -hmm. And having that kind of approach to thinking about art and the possibilities, the unexpected and kind of challenging the way that not only you conduct yourself through the world, but also just observe the world itself. And then understanding that 
some things are actually better off left without words attached to them, like visual percept to me was a lot stronger than, than the experience I had with like words and reading and poetry at that point. And it's changed now. But um, I, I think it was that critical element of like approaching art and kind of challenging certain things that was really the motivator, as opposed to making representational work that is more or less what you would recreate in, in the absence of a camera, I guess, if that makes sense. I worded that a bit strange. No, it, it kind of reminds me too, like going back into that atmosphere is like, it's all technical. You know, I remember, you know, you doing like an analog film class where you're, you know, working on shutter speeds and, mm -hmm. you know, playing around with how much grain, you know, you can get in a, a photograph. So yeah, I think that idea of bringing thoughts, being around other people, talking about stuff that's interesting, you know, absolutely is what that experience is about too, you know? And I think anybody just has to, you know, live through their first deadline where they like show up to the painting studio, you know, really late because they've got a lot of work to do for, you know, mm. their critique the next day or something like that, you know, and you start bonding with the people that are doing the same thing. So, yeah. Well, and I'm curious then too, was it primarily like painting that you had a background in, in terms of, you know, early art making or were you doing other stuff like wood, wood stuff, wood, gosh, that sounds great. Wood stuff. Um, yeah. 3d people are going to crucify me <laughs> <laughs> using tools, uh, building stuff as well as like drawing and stuff like that. Or was it specifically like drawing painting? I do know like my interest in art started at, at the very least in elementary school, if not earlier. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't something that I was obsessive about, but it was something that I was doing enough for my mom to take notice, I guess. So she actually joined a church in town and met somebody who was a professor at Walsh University in my hometown and still is. And she gave private art lessons. So I started taking her art lessons. And that's when I started making a lot more artwork and thinking about it as more of a professional opportunity. Mm -hmm. So it started off with drawing. Like if I, if I can remember correctly, it, it was drawing just because it was such a readily available approach to making art. You know, you just need a sheet of paper and a pencil. And when I was taking those art lessons with Diane Belfilio is her name, I always wanted to make paintings. And at some point we started hashing that out as well as dabbling in some other things. Like I remember working on architecture blueprints with her because I had an interest in that at a point too. So we kind of experimented a lot. And by the time I was kind of eager to do a painting, I just kind of took it upon myself and Looking back, I'm actually quite impressed by <laughs> by myself. <laughs> well, yeah, like at the time I just did a painting and it was like I, I did this landscape atmosphere and I had um, a portrait, self-portrait of myself in the frame. Mm -hmm. And I showed it to people and they were like, wow, this is fantastic. And I go, yeah, I mean, you just kind of have to put the color down in the right places, you know. Right. And looking back, like I realized, wow, that was actually pretty impressive for me to just kind of you know, just go at it with a whim. But I, I had enough experience, like, through drawing, you know, of understanding how value works and all of that stuff. The biggest challenge was just translating that into color. But I think just having, like, a, a strong interest in it is a huge motivator. Sure. I don't mean to speak on behalf of every artist, but I feel like a lot of artists enjoy the challenge a little bit. Like, every painting I do... Um, every drawing I do, it kind of feels like a puzzle that I have to solve. 
because I expect myself to run into issues that need corrected and for me to like execute something that's less than perfect. So the interest is actually in solving that problem and kind of getting it to the place that you want it to be. And if, if you have an interest in like approaching your art that way, I feel like that's the biggest motivator, at least for myself, is, is just to want to better yourself in terms of technical skill or being able to translate your thoughts in a way that your viewers can kind of land on similar associations. No, I think that totally makes sense. So you, you, it sounds like you kind of had the support to kind of like study art or, or graphic design. So is, is that what you pursued at Kent then graphic design at first? Yeah. Yeah. They, they actually have like a fairly renowned graphic design program. It's called visual culture design, VCD. I went to Kent state with the plans to be a graphic designer because in high school, I, I realized how fortunate I was to have a high school to offer three years of a graphic design course. So I had already learned all of the Adobe programs and I had actually, despite my lack of interest for it, I designed a website for somebody before I even started school. So I had all of the tools necessary available to do graph design through the process of doing those jobs. I, I picked up to do like um, commissioned work as a graph designer. I, I kind of felt a bit like a, like a horse jockey, I guess, in a way, or the horse itself, perhaps. Mm -hmm. You know, you have the technical skills and you understand the programs, but I, I realized clients really had their ideas in their head already planned out and you were just utilized to execute it. Mm -hmm. So that was a little bit discouraging to me, I guess. And that mixed with the fact that it also just seemed like the safer career trajectory than, you know, being a studio artist, which is a very scary thing to commit yourself to. So I pursued graph design with like, you know, full force and like, you know, I was hugely encouraged, I guess, and, and I, I was motivated. But then through the process of doing those jobs, I just realized if I have to do this for the rest of my life, I, I think this will burn me out at some point. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I had all of the experiences I needed to understand that I wanted to go into something creative in, in my life, because in addition to those craft design classes, I took art classes all throughout high school as well. Well, so what was that like after you kind of made that commitment to kind of switch over, you know, and I see that there's like a lot of figurative, you know, work, uh, maybe from this, this, uh, period of time as an undergraduate, is that something that kind of really motivated you to kind of work from the figure and, and do representational work at the time? You know, I've always had a motivation to like connect with my viewers. You know, I, I think there's a lot of artists who pursue studio art as a career and, at the very beginning, it's entirely like a catharsis and, you know, they're painting things from their own experience. And I think I was a lot more open and willing to share that experience and kind of communicate with my viewers on a level that we're on a similar basis. And when I was younger, it just seemed like people, images of people were the portal, the way to kind of get into that. Because you can, you know, start to be more expressive with your marks and the colors that you use or the facial expressions that are on the figure can do a lot to create empathy. And I think that was my motivation for pursuing figurative work. Plus, I also just found it to be more of a challenge. Mm -hmm. I work more abstractly now and I can say that there seems to be a lot more flexibility in terms of like you can kind of loosely render something and, and still get the point across where when you work figuratively, I feel like there's certain things that are important to kind of 
execute correctly Mm -hmm. in a convincing manner. So it takes a lot more concentration and, you know, focus on what you're observing, perhaps. And I I think it was both of those things, the the challenge and also just I, I interpreted it as the figure is the portal to, you know, human psychology. No, I think that makes sense, especially given. I mean, think about that in the context of now, too, you know. Yeah, we're all conducting our our meetings virtually, and you know, the idea of interaction with people is probably ever more you know on our minds, just because we realize how much we need that. Especially artists, I think you know, um, even painters who are typically loners. <laughs> um, yeah. So, well, again, that's kind of interesting to kind of think about for sure. Were there any artists in particular that you're kind of really like interested in, maybe around this time? Uh, you know, as you commit to painting, I had a big interest in abstract expressionists and then their relationship with existential philosophy as well. Mm -hmm. So that's when my interest in philosophy really started to increase and I started reading certain authors. But the artists that I was following were like people like Francis Bacon, George Kondo. There was this Australian artist that I still really like, um, Anthony Lister. And they were all kind of using the figure and portraiture you know, abstract portraiture in a way that I felt really resonated with how I was perceiving the world at that time. And things obviously have changed. I think my post undergrad experience really threw me, it tossed me out into the world in a bit of a shocking manner, I guess I would say. It wasn't dangerous by any means, but it it was, it was a culture shock. You know, um, I, I think it's hard to perceive the world, I don't want to say correctly, but when you're in college, there's definitely this atmosphere and culture that you're surrounded by that is much more supportive than the world you go out into. Mm -hmm. And I think my life experiences actually made me realize that abstract work, I think, was actually more appropriate for me to get my ideas across better because at that point, the figure actually seemed a bit distracting from the ideas that it was I wanted to explore. So it was in grad school, actually, I started off with doing some work that had figurative parts in it. And I don't think any of them came into fruition. By my first semester review, I had no figures in the work, if I remember correctly. And it was at that point that I was like, okay, I'm just going to go dive headfirst into this abstraction. And it was a bit nerve wracking because I had expressive mark making with my work, but I had never done anything pure abstract. And I don't think I do still, you know, I, I, I tend to notice a lot of imagery still kind of being um, suggested in my work. Mm-hmm. And I think people pick up on that. So even though I'm not pushing total abstraction, I think the abstraction was really helpful in terms of like, okay, this is actually creating discourse that's more in line with my thought process, what I'm interested in, and the way I want the work itself to function. No, I think that's interesting. You know, we essentially were just talking a little bit about how figures are universal, you know, portals to other people, obviously. Mm-hmm. So uh, in a way, it's like trying to take that same idea, but then use, you know, an abstract painting language to initiate that conversation, that dialogue with people. Yeah. So that experience of leaving the Midwest and moving to Vegas kind of helped kind of shift that then? Yeah, definitely. It's a weird weird place. How long were you there? I was there for about two years in total. I moved out there 
maybe six months after my undergrad. Basically, I just worked, lived and worked there until like a week prior to starting grad school. So it was somewhere in the ballpark of two years, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. And was there anything that you kind of like take from that experience? I say it because like having been there, you know, I don't know how many years ago, uh, Red Rocks is nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if I would hang out on the strip every day of the week. And and most locals don't. Yeah. Right, right. So because I'm curious of that because, you know, there is that like, you know, you mentioned even that piece when you're very young, you know, having landscape elements. And I think that something interesting about your most current work is that there's like an environmental aspect of it. So I'm just curious if that shift in landscape, you know, changed anything or made you think about things differently. Absolutely. Moving out there. I mean, it could have been somewhere else aside from Vegas, you know, Mm -hmm. that just was where my friend was living at the time. And I went out to visit him and I was just kind of taken away by the landscapes that were out there. It was a totally different environment for me. And it was so much more vast. It's so flat that you can see a hundred miles ahead of you and you see the mountains and everything. I mean, it's really beautiful and gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And I was quite taken away by it. And I feel like the the culture of the city is kind of a hard one to put your finger on. You know, I, I was really kind of fascinated by the heightened um, spectacle aspect of the city itself. You know, it never seemed to like turn off or anything. And then just how integrated technology, all of the lights and the screens that, that were there, they were so prevalent, you know, so ubiquitous in the city that it almost became part of the landscape. But I was more fascinated by the the landscape itself. The whole time I was out there, my most enjoyable experiences were going on hikes, going to Red Rock and going to um, Mount Charleston was a really nice place to go. And they were close enough nearby and such beautiful landscapes to look at that that was the thing that really encouraged me to move out there and think that I was going to like be comfortable and enjoy myself out there. But it was the culture of the city and just the nonstop kind of pace of it that I think really kind of wore down on me. Also, just when you're homesick out there, being from the Midwest, it's hard to find, you know, comfort, I guess. Uh, The landscapes, for instance, were just so different from what I grew up with that it was kind of hard for me to find outlets to kind of remind me of home and kind of give me some solitude or, you know, comfort, um, just from being away from it. And at some point then you made that decision that, okay, I need to go back to grad school and get back to, to work. What brought you to ISU in terms of that? I actually didn't apply to a whole lot of schools when I was out there, but I found a bunch of resources online. I think one was called the MFA experience that I used the the most. And it was all, I, I was chasing wherever the funding was. Mm-hmm. You know, college is expensive. Any any manner that I could kind of achieve the degree that I was looking for uh, without having to take out, you know, an assess- excessive amount of loans to help me through the way, that's the direction I was going to go. But I'm so happy I chose Illinois State University because there is such a huge emphasis on the teaching aspect of, of being in the art program itself. And I knew that I wanted to teach by that period of time. You were kind of talking about if there were any specific moments that motivated me to go into art. And that's a bit harder to pin down than the reasons I chose to go into teaching. Mm -hmm. It was always kind of this 
slow growth in terms of like my interest. And I had like aunts and uncles who were teachers in high schools and elementary schools and such. So it was kind of in my blood, so to speak. But there was this documentary I watched that just broke my heart so bad. It was called Waiting for Superman and it was on Netflix for a while. Mm-hmm. And it was talking about how at the how prevalent at the time achieving tenure was for people in secondary education and primary education. And just the neglect that I saw from the documentations they had of teachers uh, kind of taking advantage of that opportunity of not being able to be fired for bad performance and just the impact that it has on the kids growing up. And these, it was focused on more inner city schools. Uh, So these were school districts uh, where the students were very much struggling and they didn't have a very compelling or hopeful future ahead of them, I suppose. And just to see, you know, educators who are aware of that totally neglect their students was just heartbreaking for me. And I just kind of felt like, well, I could do a better job, even if I was teaching science, you know, something that I know hardly anything about. (laughs) And that was really, I didn't change, you know, my mind at that point, oh, I want to teach. But that is like the one thing I would say that like, made me realize I want to go into teaching. Plus, I was always having so many conversations in my undergrad classes with my classmates and even my professors, as we would expect, that, you know, the way I spoke about it, and I think my willingness to kind of change my mind, but also, you know, defend myself as well. And, you know, my observations with art and my thought process about it and the importance behind it, you know, I I was willing to be open. But I was also, you know, I, I, I felt it was important to kind of explain myself well enough. And I think just being aware of those kind of things made me realize that not only could I be a good teacher in the future, but I would really enjoy it. Like those conversations were like, hugely rewarding for me. And having the absence of that after undergrad was, you know, really discouraging, I guess. And plus, at that point, I was kind of struggling, you know, not terribly, but money was tight, you know, and I just felt like I I was constantly overwhelmed by my finances and how I was going to pay for certain things the next month ahead of me, that the the work I was making was suffering because of that Mm -hmm. being a distraction. But also, I didn't have that conversation that I was so used to. Um, It was the first time in my life where I felt like I didn't have a support community that I could have those conversations in length with, you know, other people regarding art or just life and philosophy. Any, all of those things were just things that I felt like I didn't really get a fulfilling amount of, of conversations to kind of motivate me to paint as often as I wanted to. Well, and obviously starting a new program and being around all these new people is going to totally change that and, and feed that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that orientation weekends and you're meeting all these new people, was it kind of pretty exciting to kind of think about that? I would imagine there's going to be some differences too from uh, Kent State. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I can't speak badly about like any of my experience here at uh, ISU. There's been some bumps along the road, you know, but I think wholeheartedly I, I would not replace this experience at all. And when in terms of like me coming into the first program or 
me coming into the program the first week and such, a bird could have shit on my head and it wouldn't have made a difference. I was just <laughs> so happy to like have that opportunity. And, you know, it, it felt like every, everything that I hoped I could achieve as an individual in life seems like a possibility now. And I needed that, you know, in, in the moment of my life. And uh, yeah, because of that, I just don't think I could have experienced it in a negative light by any means. I was just so happy to have that opportunity. And to think about it relative to your work, you know, you're describing a ways back that, you know, after maybe like the first semester, you kind of moved away from the figure more towards just abstract language. What was that like in terms of just, you know, maybe that first year? I mean, were you just kind of always grinding away? And again, we can definitely talk and talk about all the all the work now, especially. If I have to answer that, like, as honestly as I can, I think I didn't understand how interested I was in moving away from the figure. Mm -hmm. I, I think the thing that actually held me back a little bit was that that's what people kind of associated my art as being. It had the figure in it in some regard. And I think the scariest thing was just to, you know, in, in a way kind of rebrand your identity as an artist in terms of what you're painting. Because one of the things we struggle with, I think, you know, as students in, in art programs is we're constantly balancing this, you know, act of like creating kind of a signature aesthetic for yourself, but then also not limiting yourself so much that you're creating the same work over and over again. Mm -hmm. So it's this delicate balance of like, well, how far can I push this before it really de derails from the rest of the work and looks like it's entirely different? And finding that balance, I think, is really difficult. And it's also hard to convince yourself to break that habit every now and then, you know, to allow your work to kind of expand and unfurl a bit more. So to talk especially about like the process, are you, you know, working on a bunch of paintings at once um, and kind of jumping around? Are you, you know, sketching things out? What's the process like in terms of starting? Because, you know, it sounds like one of your goals then is to make sure that things are shifting and changing and you're not stuck in like a pattern, essentially. My process is just like a constant juggling act and communication too, like in a weird way, communication without words, I guess. What I typically do is I, I generally start my work with like the raw materials. I don't know if I get this from my family, but my grandfather was a tool and die worker, machinist might be the official term or something. And then I have an uncle who's also a carpenter. And I've always had an interest in like building and constructing itself. So like one of the things that seems really important is for me to like build my own canvases. It kind of is a meditative start to the process. And then once I do that and stretch the canvas over it and I, you know, gesso it if I'm doing that. And I usually just start with the ground color and then I, you know, maybe put some marks onto it. And then once I get it into this, you know, point where there's enough information for me to kind of like latch onto, I typically take pictures of it and I kind of sketch some things out on my iPad and I work out designs kind of like a graphic designer um, in terms of like, you kind of have this initial thing to start with and you're going to kind of toss around certain things, create different approaches to fixing this problem that you posed for yourself. And then once I kind of 
feel like, okay, this is a move I want to make. I'll implement that with physical materials. And then at some point I kind of step back again and, you know, I look at the work and I readjust it digitally thinking through the process. So it's this constant back and forth between the physical and the digital realm of like working through art. There's like a philosophical angle to that approach that really interests me. And I, I, I struggle to like explain it in less than a thousand words. <laughs> but one thing I do see that interests me that I don't see a lot of people creating conversations around is most of the like digital implementation we have of art these days is trying to reproduce the things that you can do with physical materials. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important thing to like consider is like, okay, we can interpret this and kind of fake it. So to, so to speak in the digital realm, but I have like a very inquisitive mind about, well, what does that translation mean from the digital to the physical? Because a lot of the times it's a lot easier. Some of the moves I make in my work is so much easier to execute digitally that it seems like I'm just wasting a lot of time and energy to reproduce that aesthetic through physicality. But when I do, I feel like it kind of speaks about the world that we live in, 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 in some sort of degree that I can't express with words. And I think that's also in line with the way I was talking about in, in Las Vegas, so much of the technology was just integrated into the landscape, it felt like. And, you know, we, we have this mentality almost as if there's this world we live in that's like, quote unquote, natural, and it has physicality to it. And then we have these things that we throw on top of it that's like digital. But it's very much integrated in our lives these days. And I, I think that's something I'm really interested in exploring in my work. And I have a feeling that's a concept and idea that I'm going to be, you know, plugging away at with my work for the rest of my career at this point. It's much more about the translation between the two mediums and that compromise that you have to create between the two that I find fascinating and interesting in itself, as opposed to just the juxtaposition uh, of the two mediums. Well, it's, it's interesting to think about how they inform each other, you know, because like you're saying, it's usually something that's it's more removed, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So to think about it, like specifically, there's a painting uh, from your Instagram account from uh, February. Again, it kind of takes on this floral motif, but it's uh, essentially like what looks like a stack of these green shapes that are cut into, mm -hmm. and they kind of have this layering going on. You know, if you're working through a painting like this and kind of building up layers, letting the digital process kind of inform some of these decisions. And, you know, it's kind of intermingling. Is there a point then where you start kind of thinking about it as like, I don't know, like you get an image in your head in terms of thinking about how you're going to start adding, you know, say like these marks or cut into an image. I'm curious, like where, where in that process, you know, you might start thinking about it differently than I guess where you started from. I like to think that I've gotten really good at like starting a painting without having an expectation of what it'll look like by the end. Mm -hmm. I trusted the process a lot more than I have in the past. Basically one of the, one of the strategies I use with my paintings a lot that I feel like is, is really poignant in terms of pointing out these differences between like the virtual and the physical is uh, there's this historic tradition of painting where you start with lean paint. And then you, as you continue working on the painting itself, you, the material and the paint application becomes thicker and thicker. 
And that's also say make sure that everything holds onto the canvas appropriately. But it's also just the process in which most painters have been trained to approach their work is to kind of start with thinner application of paint and build it thicker as you continue developing it and having the foreground be more detailed. That's something that I, I, I felt like was worth challenging a little bit in terms of like explaining that, well, that's not necessarily property that you have to follow in the digital creation of artwork itself. So kind of flipping some of those expectations on their head I th is a strategy I've used. I was just having a conversation with one of my professors the other day about this, and I'm less interested in people like my viewers understanding that there is this historic tradition of this painting process where you start lean to fat. But I'm more interested in the fact that they're unaware that they've become so accustomed to that organization of constructing a painting that I feel like it kind of creates a little bit of intrigue, hesitation, or maybe discomfort when they see it done the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. I'm more interested in, in the fact that without you being aware, you've expected to observe spatial relationships in a certain order. And if I just change and nudge around one kind of approach to it, it really changes the way that you start to observe the work itself. So I have a lot of elements in my work where the real thick kind of physicality of the, the paint application that I use is in total competition with like the thin spray paint application. Sometimes I just do a dry brush application to kind of have a bit more control over what a spray can mm -hmm. doesn't allow. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, it's interesting because there's like a lot of these components that are like, you know, thin veils, and then there's ones that are more opaque and mm -hmm. even kind of relate to that idea of like the way that you use layers or have, you know, like a color shift by having another color layer digitally. So it's interesting to think about that, you know, relative to thin and thick paint and, you know, just the history uh, surrounding that. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you kind of think of then as like relating to that idea of, of your process a little bit in terms of going from the analog to the digital, if I guess I can say that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's usually how I talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't quite know how to answer that question. It definitely is important in terms of like having those different mark making techniques mm -hmm. kind of work together. One of the things I'm, I'm constantly talking about in like the written aspect of my work and, you know, my, my practice is constantly searching for this balance that we have. I got exposed to more Eastern philosophies that, you know, such as Buddhism, which talks about the concept of the self kind of disintegrating the closer you examine a self, because as humans and individuals in the world, we're constantly undergoing change. So the notion of having like a, a fixed self that never changes isn't really true. And I think that's most people's conception of what a self is. So if you understand the fact that we can't really pin down a self that never changes and it's constantly undergoing change, that means that you're constantly having this battle to identify a self. And I've related that process a lot to the Gestalt principle of closure. Mm -hmm. So closure explains kind of how you can have dotted lines that are separated and still interpret like a straight line, perhaps. And I feel like that's what we're doing as individuals just throughout our experience in the world is, yeah, we can't 
identify a self that never changes, but we can kind of interpret one and we can feel it as an experience. So the reason I kind of have all of these counterintuitive moves with the mark making I use in my artwork is really just to kind of bring to surface some of those anxieties that we have just from existing in the world. So when I challenge the expectation of how we view spatial relationships in my work, I feel like that's bringing your consciousness to the surface as an individual. And I feel like it's the experience that yourself, the viewer themselves have about the work that is more of the importance or the interest I have in regards to my work. So in a way, I, sometimes I fear that the you know, thought process I have about my artwork and how I write about it is very much different from the artwork itself, but I've kind of learned ways to use that to my advantage. And I kind of consider the, the written aspect of my professional work as being the more philosophical kind of approach to analyzing the work. Mm-hmm. And then the paintings themselves kind of become just the, the science experiments. So I have all of these two modes of like working, whether it be like the digital and the physical or the philosophical and the studio approach to the work or visual and literature aspect of the work. All of those things I feel like are constantly competing for attention in a way where I am forced to kind of make compromises in a way that it seems as though they work in congruency together to express something that you can't say otherwise. You know, they rely on each other to kind of create these, these moments. One of the things that's interesting, too, is that, again, you're being super generous and letting everybody into this uh, view when you are you know, going to be working away on you know, writing a master thesis that's going to be gigantic and eat up all of your time. So I know that you know, in terms of your timeline, it's kind of an interesting spot that we're jumping in your studio. Yeah. You know, and uh, again, think about some of these work. I'm curious, like, you know, where some of the formal kind of considerations come from, the mark making we've talked a little bit about, the thin and thick paint, but then also like the color. I'm curious if it's kind of derived from that language that you've been building or is it informed from anything or that process maybe of going back and forth with the digital and then the physical? The colors, I feel like hardly relate to the digital and the physical at all. That's actually more relative to my experience. You know, there there was not a whole lot of color that was present in Las Vegas, it felt like, out in the desert. Mm -hmm. You know, there were a lot of variations of, like, orange and brown and such. But the majority of the colors that I feel like grabbed your attention were the digital signage, all the LED lights and the uh, fluorescent lights that you see hanging around all over the city. All of those things, I, I think, are what prioritize what colors I use. And I'm always grabbing colors from like the things that I experience. So generally speaking, I feel like I approach the color more from an observational manner and and less of a philosophical reasoning behind it. But generally speaking, the, the bright colors, the really high intensity colors, I feel like are really relative to my experience in Nevada and Las Vegas, whether that be like a really very vibrant green that is something very absent out there in comparison to the Midwest where you just have like, you know, hundreds shades of different green Mm -hmm. and all of this foliage to kind of look at. And then 
Las Vegas had beautiful sunsets. I mean, my God, it's it, they're, they're hard to describe, but I've never seen such bright, fiery, intense, cotton candy-looking sunsets as when I lived out there. But in the Midwest, when I think about color, I think of a lot more less intense, more neutral tones that are available to observe. You have to be a bit more careful about your observational skills to like realize that a specific shade of green is a bit more blue than the plant that is like sitting next to perhaps. So all of the colors actually come directly from my experience and how I interpret them. And I also try to throw some of those expectations on their head. So lately you mentioned uh, the, the painting foliage and that one I feel like has grabbed a lot of attention and I think it's successful in the regard that the neutral colors are actually, the more neutral tones are actually constructed out of the thick material that rests on the surface of it, mm-hmm. but they recede in the background, you know, mostly because of the colors being less intense than the green vibrant spray paint that rests underneath it, but also because it's, you know, a gradient such as the sky would be. So it has this constant, like, kind of, you know, push and pull in terms of the green foliage that's intense is actually further off in terms of the layering. You know, it's it's behind the thick application of paint, and the thick application of paint is actually functioning as the ground. So flipping those expectations using color and form are all the things I use to kind of construct this image that I think a lot of people can relate to. You know, walking through, I was just thinking back to all of the walks I went on with my friends growing up in high school, you know, we would go on kind of adventures, just hop in the car and drive around until we saw a park that looked fun to walk around in. And you see all of these lights kind of jittering through the leaves that you're walking through. And that's kind of, to me, like a bit of a magical moment. It brings back memories that I really enjoy just to kind of have these quick sparkles and glimmers of the light kind of casting through these objects that are in front of you. One thing that I really like about your work is that when I look at it, I really can't figure out how it's made. Mm. But again, I think that's one of the things that's really striking about it because there's like, you know, thicker materials, there's washes. I'm looking at one that kind of looks like almost like, I don't know, propeller kind of almost shape. Oh, yeah. And it's just, it's just interesting to kind of think about, gosh, how is this thing made? You know, and you could talk about that one a little bit, but like, are you primarily using like acrylic media then? Yeah, typically I'm using acrylic and spray paint. And then every so often I kind of don't use spray paint depending on how much control I need over the spray casting, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, generally speaking, just about every piece I would say uses a mixture of acrylic paint and spray paint. I'm bringing some drawing elements into the work in my newer work. I I don't know if I'll cover it up in the long run, but uh, I used to be a lot more willing to kind of use different materials. I've always liked the results of oil paint mm-hmm. ends up keeping its luminosity a bit better than acrylic paint does, but it's also fussier to work with. And then there's health risks involved as well. So I've actually stayed away from that, despite the fact that in the past I would use oil and acrylic in paintings as well. But yeah, acrylic is, is just, in my opinion, a lot easier to kind of work with. And there's so many different mediums available that you can create different effects a little easier than oil. Not that you can't do it with oil, but you have to wait for the dry time. And with the amount of emphasis I put on just the layering that's involved in the process of making the work, 
acrylic is definitely the medium that I'm sticking with at the moment. Yeah, it's it's really interesting too, like how you know those marks can take on different textures. Or again, there's one recent painting from September that has you know just a ton of these layered marks. I can kind of make out hopefully where the spray paint is, but literally, like you you have like the consistency of what would look like fudge. But, you know, you have these super, you know, saturated yet kind of pasty looking colors. It's really kind of remarkable, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of like, I guess the process involved, is that something where you're building one of these up in layers and then moving on to the next one, coming back, you know, with some thick marks to kind of like add to it? Every piece is totally different. Sometimes I struggle to get a painting started. I've actually been trying to do that more so this semester is is just kind of put a bit more emphasis on starting with the materials themselves. So I've taken a little more risks in terms of like starting with the thick materials that I use, where in the past I feel like I would put the washes, the thin layers down, and then add the thick layers over top after thinking about it more strategically. And then I would put the thin layers maybe over top of those. But this semester I've I've actually felt as though I wanted to become a bit more invested in, I hope I don't say this in a way that I frame myself in a way I don't like, but <laughs> I, I, I was so concentrated on reading materials and philosophy and like working on my supportive statement for my thesis show that when I started this semester, I kind of felt like I miss being so like, so not careful about my emotional investment that I attached to the work itself. I did that more as an undergrad, I think. Like everything was so much more emotionally driven. And now I I feel like I approach things in a bit more of like, like a job setting. (laughs) You know, it's, it's definitely been an approach to making art that I wasn't used to in the past. And I'm so grateful that I've kind of been able to develop this approach to the studio. But now I kind of just go in and I say like, okay, you know, I'm just going to do this move and that move. And then that's going to bring to surface some things, hopefully that are relative to what I'm experiencing in my life now. And then that kind of helps me, you know, throw a few different puzzle pieces onto the canvas that I start to get a sense of what this painting is trying to communicate with me or just the effect that it's having on me as a viewer of my own artwork. But I've really been just trying to like, gain a relationship that with the materials themselves, the physical materials that is more akin to what I experienced in undergrad. Cause I kind of miss being so thinking about my paintings as people instead of experiments. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. Well, so it's interesting to think about, you know, where you're at in terms of your timeline. Again, you're kind of working through these, these pieces and trying to, you know, keep in mind like an end date, uh, you know, are you looking forward to kind of uh, wrapping this experience up or are you kind of, <laughs> you know, wanting another year or something? <laughs> oh, man, that that's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> the, the thing is, is like I am so excited to like start a professional career in this. Mm-hmm. I know I want to go into teaching. The, the scary part is, you know, is that achievable? So as much as I am ready to graduate and kind of start this new, this entirely different professional life that I feel like I'm more prepared for now than I was after undergrad. Mm -hmm. So excited for that. It's also kind of scary. The other thing too is I'm a little disappointed because the reason I want to go into academia is because I, 
despite the fact that I will be producing work and exhibiting my work throughout my career and doing studio work and research, I don't ever want to stop being a student. And I just found that being a student by yourself was not as rewarding as when you're in like a classroom atmosphere and you can talk about things that are of interest to you, like, you know, maybe critical theory things and philosophy approaches to art, the history behind art and painting. All of those things are like of interest to me, but it's the discourse that I really like. I, I don't necessarily find myself as interested in reading textbooks and just accepting all of those statements as truth. I, I, I like talking about them as if they're worthy of being challenged or worthy of being accepted and how they kind of fit into our contemporary living space. Are they relevant? Are they not relevant? Should they be adapted? Are we viewing this artwork in the same kind of light that we were a hundred years ago? Or has the world allowed us to kind of bring some things to the surface that we were unaware of? Is it responsible to bring stuff to the surface that we were unaware of? Now, looking at paintings that were done a hundred years ago, those are the kind of questions that I really, really enjoy. So would I like to do another year of grad school? Yeah, I would. <laughs> I, I definitely would, but I, I think I would just as much enjoy being a professor and posing these questions for my students for us to kind of talk and think through together. It's interesting to think about that, you know, and I agree, you know, like we're kind of like students for life in that regards, you know? Yeah. And I, I would imagine just kind of considering that discourse, it's going to be really nice, hopefully in the not too distant future when you get to exhibit all these paintings and hopefully have mm -hmm. people come check them out and, and talk to you about them and let them experience them in a, in a way that's a little bit different than a zoom meeting. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, again, where is the best place to stay up to date? Is it Instagram for sure? Instagram for sure. Yeah. I have a Facebook page you can visit as well. Spencer S Molnar. I don't keep up to date with that one nearly as much as Instagram, but you can find me at both of those places at the moment. And what's your Instagram again? It is I look spiffy all undercase, very professional sounding. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then I believe you can also search my name as well, Spencer S. Molnar, and it should show up. Awesome. Well, again, I really appreciate you uh, letting me uh, inside your head. I know, again, it's kind of a crucial and interesting time. And aside from just the COVID times that we're in, you know, it's interesting mm -hmm. to kind of think about all that. So, again, I look forward to seeing, you know, where you're at after all of this to, to see the work. So again, I really appreciate you taking the time to apply to the student competition. So again, very nice to get familiar with your work. I appreciate you uh, taking the time. I was so excited to like be here and talk about all this stuff. So thank you for having me. Thanks once again to Spencer for joining me. Go and check out his work on Instagram at I Look Spiffy. Make sure to follow him so you can find out more about that MFA thesis coming up in the future, of course. You can also see his work at Illinois State University in the MFA biennial, and that'll run from January 10th to February 14th in 2021, so be sure and check it out. So we kind of have a last call, if you will, for our 2020 Professional Studio Break competition. 
Our juror Liz Tran will be selecting five artists for an upcoming appearance on Studio Break and to share their work. Again, professional artists include emerging, mid-career, established, and outsider artists. Unfortunately, students cannot apply to this competition. The competition is open to all 2D, 3D, and new media artists. If you want more information, go to studiobreak.com, look for our competition page, and it's quite simple to apply. You submit a small fee, you send an email identifying who you are, and including a website and or Instagram account, and you are all set. Your work will be reviewed, and who knows, you might wind up on Studio Break. I would note that the first 50 BIPOC artists will have their fees waived. So once again, studiobreak.com, look for the competition page for more details and get those applications in. And of course, if you know anybody that should be applying to this, we would really appreciate you sharing this opportunity. If you're checking out Studio Break for the first time and you enjoyed it, go to studiobreak.com. We've got a big archive of episodes, each of which have images of the artist's artwork, links to their websites, and of course, these interviews, which you can listen to right in the default player, or just click those links and subscribe to the podcast. So you've always got something to listen to and think about while you're working away in the studio. If you want to go the extra mile, you can, of course, leave a review for Studio Break, which helps others find this podcast or just share it. Once again, we are on Facebook, so please like our page there. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break and, of course, on Instagram. Follow us and check out all of the cool artists that have been applying to the 2020 professional competition at Studio underscore Break. And, of course, it's always awesome to hear from folks that enjoy this podcast, so don't be shy. Say hello on social media, on Instagram, or wherever you are posting. Let me take a second to thank Skylar Mail, who provides the music to Studio Break. You can check out his artwork at SkylarMail.net. If you'd like to see some of my paintings, be sure and follow me in social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at David Linaway, and I'll be doing a kind of sale coming up, so be sure and especially follow on Instagram as I'll be previewing all sorts of artwork that you might be able to take off my hands and hopefully help support the podcast. So once again, at David Linaway, if you want to see some of my work. And we did it. We finished. We got to the end. Hope that you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. And I hope that you are killing it in the studio. We'll talk to you real soon.